Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Brendan Cooper talks about the old Domino Sugar Factory in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Now a giant complex of condominiums with a park overlooking the East River. The factory was, in the mid-1800s, the largest sugar refinery in the world, capable of melting over 3 million pounds of raw sugar in a single day. The firm that ran it, Habemeyers and Elder, also owned and operated New York City's largest cooperage and one of the region's busiest freight depots, not to mention a street rail network that channeled goods throughout the neighborhood. Now it's a symbol of gentrification in post-industrial cities. But for many decades, the factory symbolized Gotham's unparalleled manufacturing base, larger than several of its nearest U.S. competitors combined. Here, Cooper, a fellow at the New York Historical Society and the author of a dissertation at CUNY's Graduate School exploring the history of the sugar business in the U.S. from 1789 to 1895, talks about how Domino's rose and fell. To hear the rest of this series, exploring New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at GothamCenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. For more than a century and a half, the old Domino Sugar Refinery in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, stood over the East River like a fortress. Already the world's largest sugar refinery when it first began operating in 1857, it was renovated and rebuilt several times in the following two and a half decades. And by 1883, it was capable of melting over three million pounds of raw sugar in a single day, more than twice as much as any of its competitors. The refinery's walls stretched from South 2nd Street to South 6th along what is now Kent Avenue, enclosing five square blocks and housing the 10-story sugar works, a 13-story filtering house, a giant warehouse just off the docks, and its own machine shop where skilled workers built and repaired much of the factory's equipment. The firm that ran the refinery, Havemeyers and Elder, also controlled a street rail network that channeled goods throughout the neighborhood and owned and operated the city's largest cooperage, as well as one of the region's busiest freight depots just a few blocks north, where they loaded train cars with sugar before floating them across the river on barges to the Erie Railroad Terminal in Jersey City. For the majority of its lifetime, the refinery was a prominent symbol of the city's diverse and unparalleled manufacturing base. One of many sugar factories that dominated the Brooklyn and Queens shoreline in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was also sandwiched between the massive Brooklyn Navy Yards to the south and oil refineries, ironworks, pharmaceutical and chemical factories, and a plethora of machine shops, cooperages, gas works, and smaller manufacturers to the north and east. In 2004, when the refinery's boiler room finally went cold for good, after years of declining output capped off by the longest labor strike in the city's history, the empty building became an iconic fixture of the city's post-industrial landscape, a relic of a distant and very different past amid the ever-gentrifying North Brooklyn waterfront. 
Its current incarnation as the site of a mega project by the real estate development firm Two Trees Management is even more apt for present day New York. Led by the group most recently behind the redevelopment of the Dumbo area of Brooklyn, the factory has been transformed into multiple mixed usage complexes with thousands of apartments, offices, and retail spaces, and a six acre waterfront park that hosts a farmer's market on the weekends. As of the fall of 2020, the project is not yet complete, but the historical and economic forces that have brought it about surely are. The Domino Refinery's transformation is hardly surprising. These days, New York's economy, much like the country's as a whole, is driven by the twin speculative industries of finance and real estate, turning what was once the largest sugar factory in the world, the engine that made sugar refining the New York region's most important manufacturing industry for almost a century, into condos and retail space makes perfect sense. In fact, if anything, it's a little too on the nose. But the development project is still telling, in the very least as a reflection of the historical phase of capitalism that we now find ourselves in. Likewise, the story of the refinery's heyday sheds light on many of the forces that drove American industrialization, and offers numerous windows into the local, national, and global arenas that helped shape the city and the country's political, economic, and even legal history in the second half of the 19th century. Of all the major industries that contributed to industrial development after the Civil War, sugar refining might be the most qualified for such a task. It was one of the country's first mass production industries, and sugar refiners helped lead the trust movement at the end of the 19th century. As one of the largest and most visible of these giant corporate combinations, it was also the first to be subjected to antitrust litigation, the outcome of which helped define modern corporate and monopoly law at the turn of the 20th century. But here I just want to outline the industry's significance and point out some of the key connections and relationships that made the Havemeyers and Elder firm, and the Domino Refinery in particular, such important players in this story. First, a little background. Any discussion of the 19th century sugar industry should begin by pointing to sugar's unique position in foreign politics and trade particularly its role as the single most important contributor to government revenue. By the 1870s, import duties on raw sugar accounted for more than a third of all the duties the Treasury collected, and amounted to a staggering one-sixth of the government's total budget. This fact alone placed the industry at the center of countless political debates, and made its fate, and the multiple relationships with foreign nations on which it relied, of the utmost importance. Because U.S. refiners received most of their sugar from Cuba, the federal government's revenue was therefore directly tied to foreign slavery until the early 1880s, when the Cuban slave system finally broke down. Throughout the century, the U.S. also proved more than willing to leverage access to its market to pressure elites in Hawaii and Cuba into political and trade agreements that, over time, eventually made Hawaii a U.S. colony and severely limited Cuban autonomy when it officially became independent from Spain in 1898. But the sugar tariff was not only the most important tariff of the era, it was also by far the most complex. After mid-century, the government attempted to tax raw sugar imports according to their relative quality and sweetness. For the most part, it did so by assigning a color test to imports, with darker sugars receiving a lower score and lower duties, while lighter sugars received a higher score and were taxed at a higher rate. On its face, this was a simple procedure but it was also very easily manipulated through artificial coloring or simply mixing dark molasses with high quality, partially refined sugar. And the potential and incentives for fraud were infinite. 
The U.S. was the only major sugar importing nation in the world to use a sliding scale to tax its imports. Britain, the world's largest sugar market, had stopped collecting duties on imports altogether in 1874, while every other European nation either had just two categories, one for raw and one for refined, or a single tax regardless of quality. Given the wide range of possible colors, textures, and sweetness on the spectrum from raw to refined sugar, a complete understanding of the tariff, to say nothing of its enforcement, required an intimate knowledge of the industry's most technical and complex variables. At the close of a particularly heated debate over the sugar schedule in the 1880s, Senator John Ingalls from Kansas admitted, in fact, that the tariff was, quote, so inextricably confounded that nobody in the Senate understands it. As the trade grew in size and importance after the 1850s, Congress and the Treasury therefore became increasingly reliant on industry insiders for important analysis and information. No refiners in the nation manipulated this tension between the complexity and importance of the sugar schedule better or more willingly than Henry and Theodore Havemeyer, the primary owners of the Williamsburg plant. When tariff reform was up for debate in Washington, they served as expert witnesses. When sympathetic senators needed help crafting legislation, they helped write the bills. And if that wasn't enough, when their orders of raw sugar from Cuba or Java arrived to Brooklyn, they used their own scales and their own employees to weigh and assess the shipment's quality. For large refiners like the Havemeyers, imported sugar directly onto their own docks, while a single customs agent roamed the Williamsburg and Greenpoint waterfront, enforcing the most important and convoluted tariff schedule in the country. As one might expect under these circumstances, the sugar tariff benefited the refining industry immensely. First, it essentially prohibited the importation of refined sugar and greatly incentivized foreign producers to limit their output to all but the lowest grade of raw brown sugar. Without the tariff, nothing would have prevented Cuba from directly competing with the Havemeyers and Elder Firm for access to the coveted U.S. market. But the tariff sliding scale also gave Havemeyers complete control over the market for semi-refined sugar, which actually accounted for the great majority of their business. That is to say that in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, most of the sugar the Williamsburg refinery produced was, by almost every other nation's measurements, unrefined. It was this cheap, technically semi-refined sugar that was chiefly responsible for the revolution in the nation's diet that took place between the 1850s and the turn of the 20th century. Prior to the 1850s, most working people used sugar very sparingly. In the home, Raw or semi-refined sugar was used both as a spice and a sweetener in savory or semi-sweet dishes, or in otherwise bitter beverages like tea, coffee, and chocolate. But items like jams, crystallized fruits, hard candy, ice cream, cakes, and cookies were expensive treats. Common fare at the exclusive pleasure gardens or upper-class saloons of early 19th century New York and London, but not important parts of most people's everyday diets. After the mid-century point, Changes to the tariff drastically lowered the price of raw sugar imports and set off a boom in the refining industry in the United States. Sometime in the late 1850s, ice cream moved from expensive restaurants to corner shops and street sellers' carts in working-class neighborhoods, while the number of candy and confectionery shops across the country increased exponentially. In addition to cheap chocolates or children's penny candy, Sweet syrups, biscuits, and custards supplied flavor and useful calories to the drab and often unappetizing cuisine of the emerging industrial working class. Preserved fruits, individually wrapped candies, and canned vegetables and soups all had long shelf lives and took up very little space in cramped urban living quarters. 
and provided quick and easy energy boosts during 12-hour workdays. In short, it was at this time that sugar became a food, an important part of the pleasures and necessities of working-class life. So it is no coincidence that the Havemeyer's interest in the Williamsburg refinery dates to the mid-1850s. And although the family's connection to the industry goes back at least to the last quarter of the 18th century, the mid-century boom set off a wave of expansion in New York and Brooklyn. And it was the primary incentive for them to purchase the plot on South 3rd Street and the East River, after which point they quickly became the largest producers in the nation. While changes to the tariff ignited the boom, they also coincided with, and in fact helped speed, the global transfer of sugar technology out of continental Europe and into the major milling and refining centers around the world. For the Domino refinery was not just unique because of its size, it was also one of the most sophisticated factories of any kind in existence. Fully equipped with the most state-of-the-art machinery and capable of combining the highest level processing methods available. Most histories of mass production industries place a heavy emphasis on technological advancements. Refining and distilling plants in industries like sugar and oil, the first to achieve what economic historians call continual processing, were themselves giant machines reliant on a complex coordination of fuel, heat, and technology. Each processing phase was linked, and like the individual machines within the plant, the building itself had to be constructed in a way that allowed for the maximum ex exploitation of energy and the efficient flow of materials from beginning to end. Mass production thus required altogether new, complex, and expensive plant design. Sugar refining is an ancient art, but prior to the early 19th century, it had achieved very few significant advancements by way of technology or processing methods. Nearly all of the technological advancements that took place within the industry between the 17th and early 19th centuries came out of Caribbean and Brazilian mills, and almost all of them had to do with the conservation of fuel in the early stages of processing, that were not transferable to major refineries and urban centers. Market forces were not much help here either. For as long as refined sugar remained an expensive luxury, refiners had very little incentive to invest in what little new technology was available, let alone dedicate time and money to long-term research and development projects to improve their plants. But in the early 1800s, developments within Napoleonic France set in motion a chain of events that revolutionized the sugar-making process and helped the Havemeyers rise to the top of the U.S. industry a half century later. The engine for this change came from an unlikely source, the white Silesian beet, a relatively bland vegetable with no prior commercial value whatsoever. Napoleon saw domestic agriculture and industries, and import substitution in particular, as central to his revolutionary imperial project. And between 1810 and 1815, he directed massive amounts of state resources towards the development and encouragement of a sugar beet industry. His efforts successfully established a permanent sugar industry in Northern Europe that stumbled after his empire fell in 1815, but expanded at a dramatic rate the following decade. Prussian officials watched these developments closely, and by the early 1830s, they helped plant the seeds of, of what would become the great German sugar industry just a few decades later. The European beet industries of the 19th century were all propped up considerably by state protection and direct encouragement most notably through industrial policies that funded the long-term research and development projects that refiners in New York and London were unable to. New filtering methods, drastic improvements in vacuum technology crucial to the boiling and crystallization stages, and the use of centrifugal force in the final drying stage completely revolutionized the sugar beet industries and made European beet producers major players on the international market by the 1840s and 1850s. By the last quarter of the century, 
Germany was the world's single largest producer and exporter of raw and refined sugar, a development that was simply unimaginable a few decades earlier. While beet sugar as a whole accounted for two-thirds of all the sugar on the global market. Extracting sugar from beets begins with a very different process than that which is applied to cane. But after the factories produce raw sugar, the refining methods are in fact identical. The French were the first to recognize that sugarcane planters in the Caribbean and Indian Ocean could make use of their machines and techniques. In the early 1840s, they began exporting and installing beet machinery in the tropics. When the U.S. tariff dropped prices for American refiners in 1846, French companies had, just three years prior, equipped the largest mills in Cuba with this cutting-edge technology. So new low prices for raw sugar on the U.S. market coincided perfectly with a dramatic increase in output from Cuban planters and allowed refiners like the Havemeyers to exploit sugar beet technology and plant design themselves. In fact, the Havemeyers made numerous trips to their native Hanover in Prussia in the early 1850s to study beet factories and purchase machines for their new plant. As the new technology spread throughout the world, each nation's policy mediated the ways that planters and refiners were able to put it to use. In the U.S., the tariff continued to protect the domestic market, which allowed refiners to completely dominate the industry, but also made them reliant on foreign suppliers. Britain had seen an analogous boom in refining during the 1850s and 1860s, but beginning in the 1870s, free trade policies all but destroyed their industry, and many firms went bankrupt as confectioners and others in the sugar-using industries purchased refined beets directly from Europe. Beet producers protected their markets from both raw and refined imports, filling domestic demand with their own sugar and heavily subsidizing exports to the free trade ports of Britain. Cuba, who was just as capable of refining sugar as anyone else, meanwhile, had no significant market of its own and became even more dependent on the U.S. after Britain turned to beets. As the technology that planters and refiners used became increasingly standardized, the global supply chain thus remained heavily segmented shaped by the disparate policy and revenue goals of each nation. After opening in 1857, the Havemeyers and Elder Refinery thrived for decades, making Theodore and Henry Havemeyer two of the wealthiest and most powerful captains of industry in the Gilded Age. But by the 1880s, their Williamsburg refinery had begun to glut the market, and prices for refined and semi-refined sugar began to fall. The firm still led the industry, but chronic overproduction drove profits down. At the same time, East Coast refiners watched nervously as a new group in San Francisco, led by the sugar king Klaus Spreckels, began to make headway into the Midwestern states. In many ways, the Williamsburg refinery's efficiency and the peculiarities of continual processing itself forced Have Myers and Elder to act, for they could only exploit the advantages their factory gave them by running it at as close to full capacity as possible running at low capacity or momentarily shutting down and waiting for prices to rise meant wasting valuable fuel, erasing their economies of scale, and losing even more money. Yet the short-term solution of pumping out more sugar only made matters worse. Their competitors, for their part, were in an even worse position, as those with smaller factories had even smaller profit margins, and yet they had still found out that they had invested far too much to simply give up and sell their machinery for parts. The industry was sick, and everybody knew it. When a series of informal price-fixing deals fell apart in the early 1880s, the Havemeyers took the lead of a more formal movement for corporate consolidation in 1887, convincing all the refiners on the East Coast to sell their businesses and form what was essentially one big company.
In doing so, they followed a path laid by John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil just a few years earlier. The move sparked a new phase for the factory, the industry, and the nation's economy. For sugar was different than oil. Working families took sugar into account when they made their budgets. They consumed it, in one form or another, at almost every meal. And when the Sugar Trust, as the new company was known, took control of the industry's output, it shut down production in plants all along the East Coast, putting thousands of workers out on the street and sending prices rising for the first time in decades. Almost overnight, the Sugar Trust became a symbol for a new type of predatory corporate power, and its head, Henry Havemeyer, the most infamous robber baron in the country. The trust actions helped shift popular anti-monopoly sentiment away from the railroads and towards manufacturers. But much like the opposition to current-day mega-projects by real estate development firms, public outcry against corporate overreach often comes far too late. The problems the industry faced were structural, rooted in a century of policy decisions and investment patterns, and weighed down by the accumulation of vested political and economic interests. There was enough opposition to combinations like the Sugar Trust and Standard Oil for the federal government to make the trust form illegal in 1890, but both giants quickly found safe harbor in New Jersey's revised corporate statutes, and they immediately reorganized themselves into holding companies, an altogether new and far more stable corporate structure. The path the refiners blazed in the short years that followed set the stage for the complete restructuring of the nation's economy by the turn of the 20th century. And from that point on, the questions the country faced was not if corporate consolidation would unfold in the manufacturing sector, but rather what that consolidation would look like, who would administer it, and how the new rules of the market would be governed. Most standard accounts of the rise of mass production and corporate consolidation place market forces at the center of their explanations. Many of these accounts argue that competition between firms generated new and more efficient technology which then further incentivized those firms to outpace demand. But the history of the old Domino sugar refinery reminds us that, outside of their political contexts, market forces, on their own, don't explain very much at all. It's true that the Sugar Trust's origins can be traced to crises in chronic overproduction and overcapitalization. But the market that the Havemeyers glutted was itself the product of the tariff and other government policies. And the all-important technology they used had come out of long-term, state-funded research and development projects in continental Europe. Prior to these breakthroughs, the market, if anything, had held back technological advances. Throughout the century, government policy created markets, guided activity, helped direct investment, and provided the necessary legal framework that gave a structure to the industry's development. This was true in Britain, Germany, Cuba, and the United States. The Havemeyers may have been proud individualists and arrogant businessmen, but their corporation, and the Domino refinery itself, were above all creatures of politics and law. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at GothamCenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone.